Chapter 2 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 7. We're going to read verses 7 through 11. We're slowly walking our way through this book. Remember, the easiest way to find 1 John is to open to the back of the Bible, and if you're in Revelation, turn left just a little bit, and you'll find 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read from verses 7 through 11. I made a couple of announcements earlier and I missed one. It's very good to see Mary Heisey with us this morning. She hasn't been able to be with us for some time, and uh, here she is, so you all better behave. So, um, because if you mess around, she'll help you, and that just won't be good. So, First um, John chapter 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness. And walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another. That has to be the least shocking admonition ever offered from a pulpit in a church. Everyone knows this, right? No one is surprised that the Bible calls us, or no one is surprised to hear this call again, that followers of Jesus are supposed to love one another. This is not surprising at all. I'm not sure how much you think about this, but when you read the newspaper today, even though it's a newspaper, it will be filled with all kinds of unsurprising things. You'll pick it up and you'll read it. Somewhere in the paper there's going to be a story about a group of sports fans who are jubilant about their team's latest victory. They're in Los Angeles today. And there's another group of fans who are devastated by a loss. They're already thinking about next year. There will be a story about that in the paper today. You don't have to read it. I saved you time. Uh, You know without reading it that somewhere in the United States they're experiencing today better weather than we have today. Uh, Somewhere in the newspaper there is a story about a business executive who has been accused of defrauding investors or the government. Somewhere in there, there is an international crisis involving war. Somewhere in the newspaper, there will be a notice that J.C. Penney is having its biggest sale ever. (laughs) Somewhere in the newspaper, there will be a story about the fact that President Trump has offended someone with his latest tweet. That will be in there. None of this is news. They're not shocking things. Uh, Add to this list of not news. The Bible calls followers of Jesus to love one another. This is something we all know, but apparently it's a command that we're not very good at following. I conclude that by the fact that the Holy Spirit included in the scriptures dozens of times a reminder about this command. He knew, the Holy Spirit knew, that we would either forget this or neglect this. So he repeated it over and over and over again. One of my favorite admonitions about our love for one another is in 1 Thessalonians 4 9. I wrote it down in the note sheet, that green note sheet in your bulletin. Look what Paul wrote. 
Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. This is an awesome parental command. Isn't this great? Paul says, now I don't need to remind you of this, but I'm going to remind you of this. Doesn't he sound like a parent? You do remember, don't you say this? You do remember, right, what we're doing this weekend and what you need to do. Do you ever do that? I don't need to write you about love, but I'm going to do so anyway, right? The verses that we just read in 1 John are here uh, not because there were believers who had forgotten about love. There were actually a group of people that John was thinking about who denied that love mattered. This is one of the ways that they were failing to demonstrate that they really understand what it means to follow Jesus, that their faith in Jesus is real. It is possible, we have talked about this, to think that you are a follower of Jesus and to be deceived about your true spiritual condition, to think you're genuinely a Christian but not to be. So John wrote this letter into a situation in which there were two competing visions for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and both of them cannot be true. They're contradictory. So, so John wrote this letter to clarify, how can you know that you're genuinely a follower of Jesus? We've talked about some of the tests that he writes. Uh, first, you have to believe what the apostles taught about Jesus. You might call that the truth test. You have to affirm the apostles' message that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. The truth test. Then there's what some people have called the moral test, the morality test. The trajectory of your life has to be toward obedience to God's commands. I know there are changes, there are seasons in everybody's life, but in general, followers of Jesus, we are growing in obedience. That's the basic trajectory of life, the morality test. And here, in the verses that we just read, is John's first crack at what you could describe would be the love test. Do you love your fellow believers? And for the rest of the book of John, uh, 1 John, what he's going to do is he's going to go back and forth between those three tests, the truth test, the morality test, and the love test. In these five verses, John is here to, writes this to tell us why the Bible calls followers of Jesus to love one another. Why is this such an important command? We know the command is there, love one another, but why? You should think about that. You need to think about why this command is repeated because your love for others who are followers of Jesus will be as deep or only as deep as the reasons you have for loving them. For example, if you love people for only what you receive from them, if you only love them because they'll love you back, your love will only be as deep as the love that they give you. And if they stop, so will you. Or uh, if you love others only for their approval, only because you're a nice person and that's what nice people do and you want people to know you're a nice person, and if you only love people so that you get their approval, you will only love them when, when your love can be seen. What's the point of loving someone if there's no one there to applaud you, if you're loving for applause? But we have deeper reasons to love one another, and that's what I want to show you in this text this morning. So here what we're going to do is we're going to talk about two reasons why the Bible, why followers of Jesus talk so much about love. Why are these commands so much in the Bible? And I have two reasons, 
All right, here they are. Reason number one, we'll start with this one. Our love for one another is rooted in Jesus Christ. Our love for one another is rooted in Jesus Christ himself. Let's walk through the passage here. Verse 7 begins with this strange um, discussion over whether or not the command to love one another is new or is old. It seems like what was happening is that there were some people who were accusing John of changing the rules, uh, of modifying his teaching, and they say that this love command is, is new. And John says, no, this is not a new command. This is a command that they have had from the beginning, he says. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Um, what does from the beginning mean? John used this phrase uh, a lot of different ways. Look down with me at 1 John 2, verse 13. 1 John 2, 13 says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Well, the him in that passage is God, and how long has God been? What's the beginning of God? Well, the beginning, the beginning, before the beginning. He's the one who's from the beginning. He's eternal. So in this phrase, the, the, in this verse, the phrase from the beginning means the big beginning, from before then. Same thing happens in 1 John 1, 1. He uses this same phrase. That which was from the beginning. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus. From the beginning, the beginning. That's not, though, how he's using it in, in chapter 2, verse 7. There he's talking about the beginning of their faith. From the beginning, when they first heard about Jesus, you knew this command. It is as old as your faith itself, this command to love one another. What's interesting about this here is that John is suggesting that the call to love one another is part of the announcement of the gospel itself. Think about this. So the apostles, they first start testifying about the Lord Jesus Christ and and they speak about all that they have seen and heard. Let me tell you about Jesus of Nazareth. I have seen him. I have heard him. He is a man full of power and of wisdom. And I saw him do miracles. And they would speak, though, primarily even about his resurrection, his death and his resurrection. His death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection, his ascension, and how, the apostles would say, you can receive forgiveness and life through him in his name, but the call to follow Jesus and turn to him is not just you and Jesus, it's a call to join the community that Jesus has founded. A call to turn and trust in him. You become a follower of Jesus and a member of Jesus' community. The apostles were preaching this from the beginning. And the distinguishing mark of this community that Jesus, the risen, ascended Jesus, has formed is that we love one another. Love is the first and central call of Christian discipleship. It's the first and most visible sign of your growing relationship with him. Does it play that, does love as a command play that preeminent a role in your Sunday school class? Do you talk to your students about this? If you're a follower of Jesus, here is your call. Or does it happen in your discipleship group? Do your children know when you talk to them about what it means to be a Christian? Do they know that love is this distinguishing characteristic? This command is not new. It's as old as the faith of John's readers. And yet, <laughs> yet he seems to contradict himself. In verse 8 he says, uh, yet I am writing you a new command. He says it is old for you in your experience and yet it, it, 
I'll admit, it was new. It seems like some of John's opponents are saying, that they've read the Gospel of John, and they're saying, this is something new. And John said, yes, it's new, but not for, for you. It was new a long time ago when Jesus first said it. He's referring here to John 13. Look at John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, <coughs> love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus issued this new command about love. He said that our love for one another would be this distinguishing characteristic of his followers. Here is the rootedness uh, that John is pointing to. The measure of our love for one another is the love of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, what's interesting, verse 8, let's continue. He says, it's truth, and I think that word truth, is he's talking about the newness. The fact that this command is true, the, the, the new, the truthfulness of the newness of the command is evident, and it's evident in him and in you. How do we know that the command is 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 true? How do we know it's truly new? Is because there's something about Jesus and there's something about you. And then he clarifies that it's simple, really. He says, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now, if I were sitting in the pew, I would say that doesn't sound very simple. What's, what's he talking about here? I think we get help in understanding what John is writing uh, about in his epistle from his gospel. So I put down on the note sheet some verses from John 1, very familiar verses. Look what John 1, 4 says. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then verse 9 says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So what John is saying here is he's, he's talking about Jesus being the light. And Jesus has come into the world. And because he has come into the world, the darkness is passing Literally, it's being passed away, and that light is already shining. That's how we know this command is new, because it came with Jesus. It was new in Jesus, and there is evidence everywhere that Jesus has come. The darkness is passing. The light is already shining. Here's the old, new command. It's old because you heard it a long time ago, at the beginning of your faith, it's new because when Jesus came, Jesus introduced a new age, a new season, a new era of light and life, and this new characteristic of this new age that the Lord Jesus has brought is, is love. It's, it's new. It's beautiful. The Lord Jesus demonstrated it supremely, and you, you who are his followers, when you love one another, you are shining too. You're showing that you have received Jesus' words when you love one another. That's what I think he's saying in verse 8. The newness of this command is true in him because he inaugurated this new age and, and the light is already shining. It's, it's shown in him and it's shining in you as you love one another. A new age has come because Jesus has come into the world. Now, I don't do this very often, but I want to show you a picture this morning. I'm going to show you a painting, one that you've all seen. So this is why the screen is down, and there it is. All right, you, you recognize this picture, I'm sure. If you're downstairs, you might want to split the screen uh, so you can see it. Uh, so this is Vincent van Gogh. Well, that's not Vincent van Gogh. That's a painting that Vincent van Gogh made, right, called Starry Night. 
Uh, he painted this in 1889 when he was in France. He was in an, uh, a, a mental institution. He was in an asylum because uh, he had just cut off his ear. So they institutionalized him for a period of time, and he was uh, in the asylum for an, a, a long period of time, and he used to, from his window, look out at the valley. He wrote his brother, uh, Theo, who was in Paris at the time, about his experiences, and he said to Theo, he said, I am, he said, I feel a tremendous need for religion, so I go outside at night to paint the stars. You can see all the stars in their brilliance. It's a beautiful painting, although the, the brilliance that he saw in the sky. Now, there's a number of interpretations of this painting. I'm not an expert in uh, artistic interpretation, but notice you can see in this picture there's light in the sky, those beautiful stars, and, and you notice here there's light in some of these houses. See these light in these houses? And here's the church. Who knows about the church? Dark. So Van Gogh is looking for light. He's looking for truth. And he sees it in the heavens. And he sees it in some of these homes, but not in the church at all. No one's home. No life. No light. No love in that dark, cold building. Is that how Van Gogh saw the churches that he knew in his native Holland? There's no life, no light, no love there. Just darkness. The Apostle John has the exact opposite. Danny, we're done with the screen, so you can raise that. Thank you. Uh, the Apostle John had the exact opposite view of these churches to which he's writing. He's saying to them, you're full of light. You're full of light because Jesus has come and you believe in Jesus. And, and uh, there, your church is a place where the light of the love of Jesus is shining. Jesus has come and his, his, his appearing is evident in the lives of, of the believers there in, in their love for one another. I wonder if you think about local assemblies that way. Think about churches as places of love. Jesus has come. What's the sign that he has come? The sign is all over the world. There are assemblies of people who gather together in Jesus' name and they love one another. They assemble in massive stone cathedrals and they assemble in huts and they assemble in simple buildings and they assemble in caves and secretive meetings and apartments. His followers of Jesus meet together, they worship him and they love one another. Every church, an embassy of love, an outpost of the love of Jesus, loves the sign that you are really his. We are communities of men and women characterized by faith in the Lord Jesus and love for one another. Now we need to think about the nature of this love for just a minute. What, how should we think about this? Howard Marshall described it quite well. I think there's other descriptions of what the Bible says when the Bible talks about love. Uh, but this, I like this definition because it's simple. It probably could be added to, but it's just simple to help think about for a few minutes. He said that the love that John is writing about here is caring for the needs of others, even to the point of self-sacrifice. Caring for the needs of others, even to the point of self-sacrifice. It's, it's using your skills and your energy and your time and your gifts to meet the needs of others to the point of sometimes your needs go neglected. 
at least on a human plane, you're meeting the needs of others, and because of that, sometimes your needs go unmet. Now, we're pretty decent at the first part of that definition, caring for the needs of others. But usually we talk about meeting the needs of others in the terms of overflow. So with the time and energy that you have left over, after you've taken care of of yourself, then you help others with, with what you have left over. But that's not actually Christian love, and it's not really miraculous. I'm grateful for it. I'm very grateful for the people who, out of the overflow of what they have, uh, meet other people's needs. Uh, the world is a kinder and gentler place because there are lots and lots of people who give generously with the overflow. But there's nothing supernatural in giving from the overflow. There's nothing miraculous about that. That's not Christian love. Christian love meets the needs of others, sometimes at the, the sake of your own, and it delights in doing so finds joy in doing so, uh, a joy in, in the self-sacrifice that you are making so that others can benefit. This is the sort of love we usually associate with parents, right? This is how parents love their children. Isn't how some of you think about your mother? People did not have perfect mothers. I understand that. Some of you had very difficult homes. But isn't this the way that we experience motherhood? Your mother gives up her needs so that she can meet yours, care for yours. Some of you are in the thick of this type of love right now. You desperately need sleep, but you have a baby who does not care whether you are well-rested or not. Right? Uh, People occasionally ask me about my hobbies. What hobbies do you have? I say, I don't have hobbies. I have children instead. Right? Uh, The two are mutually exclusive. They feel mutually exclusive. Why is it, now think about this here with me, so we think about this giving up of my needs so that I can meet yours. We think about this easily with love with your children, but not really with your spouse. Why is it easy to think of this sort of love with your children, but not so easy to think about this love with your spouse? I'll care for your needs at the cost of my own, What's interesting is actually that when children enter the picture, it makes that spousal self-sacrifice harder, right? You spend your whole day caring for these little black holes of neediness. And and, and, and so when your spouse gets home, they better be ready to take care of you because you have spent your whole day caring for somebody else. You better take care of me. Or I've spent my whole day, really a long, hard day at work, so we have money to feed and clothe these little black holes of neediness. So when I get home, someone better take care of me. Does that ever, does that sound like the default way your mind works sometimes? I I recently saw a, a story about the divorce rate in America. The divorce rate in America is going down. That's not really good news. The reason the divorce rate in America is going down is because the marriage rate in America is going down. And one of the reasons that the marriage rate is going down is because in our culture we're starting to load marriage with such high expectations that people despair of ever finding the right sort of spouse. Now, follow me here for just a minute. I've heard Tim Keller and Russell Moore both speak about this. 
People are delaying marriage and settling for living together because their vision of marriage is that it's a relationship in which this sort of self-sacrificial love is unnecessary. I'm going to find the perfect spouse. I'm going to find my soulmate. And my soulmate and I are going to be in such perfect sync with one another that sacrificial love will be unnecessary because my soulmate will be so in tune with me that there will be never be a moment in which either of us feel a moment of self-sacrifice. It will all be joy all the time. Now, you have been married a long time. How does that sound? Right? Is that how marriage works? Tim Keller calls this uh, the search for the apocalyptic romance. The romance that will end all romances. The romance that will be the fulfillment of all of my vision of, of what love is. And until you find that sort of love in which no self-sacrifice is necessary, you shouldn't get married, so our culture tells you. You can live together. That's okay, but you're not going to get married because your love is not yet good enough. It's not yet perfect enough. It's not yet perfect enough for this sort of lifetime commitment. Huh. It's not very realistic. It's not very biblical. It's not, not very Jesus-like. When we think about this sacrificial love, uh, this realistic sacrificial love in 1 John 2, we think most easily about a parent we, we kind of hope for it in a spouse. Do you ever think you would find that sort of sacrificial love in a church? Remember Marshall's definition, caring for the needs of others, even to the point of self-sacrifice. Setting aside my needs in order to meet yours. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, stories about how I've seen this sort of love manifest in our church. I have seen it. I have seen it multiple times in many, many ways. But I also know that the most prominent reason why people leave a church to find a new one is because their needs aren't being met. I'm not painting with a broad brush. I know there's a lot of different circumstances, but the truth remains this is people's default. If your needs aren't being met at First Baptist, then try Second Presbyterian. And if that doesn't work, go find a Third Community. You're gonna find him, I'm going to get my needs met somewhere, Right? And yet, here's this love with which we are called to love one another. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The reason that we can love one another this way is because we have experienced love like this. Jesus has loved us when we were about as unlovable as we possibly could be. You can made, imagine making a sacrifice for a good man. You can imagine that. You, you can imagine making a sacrifice for an honorable person. You know, the members of our Secret Service, they, they sign on to protect the life of the president and his family and former presidents and then presidential candidates. And they sign on for this. I, I will take a bullet for this person. Uh, and they, they do it not because of their great vision of the person, but they do it because of their vision of the office. The presidency is worth sacrificing my life for, and I will sacrifice my life for the presidency. Well, can you imagine what would it be like for somebody to give their life for a bum, for a thief, or for a murderer, or for a child molester? God shows the full extent of his love in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. You want to talk about self-sacrifice. Jesus set aside his prerogatives as God the Son, and he took to himself human flesh, and he became obedient to his Father, even to the extent of death on a cross, and he did it to address the greatest need that every human being has, the need to be rescued from the wrath of God, the need to be rescued from your, uh, forgiven for your sin. Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and for the sake of his love, he sent his followers into the world. He sent people like Peter and John and Paul, and he sent you, he sent you into the world to tell people about him, to invite them to trust, invite people to turn and trust in him and find life and forgiveness in his name. Our love for one another is rooted in the love of Jesus. And the sort of love he showed. Our love for one another is as deep as his love for us. Mark Dever says that he meets young men frequently who like to argue about theology. They're really good at talking about the finer points of scripture and finer points of doctrine. And they really, they can go to the stratosphere and back talking about the, the Greek and the, you know, Calvin. And they can quote them all. It's wonderful. And then he says, I meet all, men like that, young men all the time like that who love to have those discussions, but then they won't get up early on Sunday morning to give an elderly church member a ride to church. He says, I don't know what kind of Christians they are. They may be Christians, but I don't understand what they, what they think it means to actually follow Jesus. Here, brothers and sisters, is why we as a congregation are committed to worshiping and talking about the Lord Jesus so much, why we sing songs about his love, why we think about it together, because we're discipling one another when we sing and think and pray about his love. We're discipling one another in the sort of love that we're supposed to show to one another. Our love for each other is as deep as the love of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, here's a second reason why we love one another. So we love one another because our love is rooted in the Lord Jesus. And secondly, we'll spend less time on this, we love one another because our love for one another illuminates our lives. Our love illuminates our lives. In verses 9 through 11, John here kind of returns to a theme that he brought up back in chapter 5. God is light. This whole passage is, is devoted to God is light. And, and then he refers to, it's interesting in verse 9, to the false teachers. Again, he's, these false teachers. Anyone who claims, he says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister still in the darkness. And then verse 10 pairs with verse 9. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Now that's an odd phrase. There's nothing in them to make them stumble. The word stumble here means a trap, something that trips you up. Love, love protects you. It helps you avoid traps. He explains this even more in verse 11. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. Oh, They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Have you ever stubbed your toe in the middle of the night? Oh, hurts like the dickens, doesn't it? Right? John says that love for brothers and sisters keeps you from spiritually stubbing your toe. It protects you. It keeps you from walking around in the darkness and being blinded by the darkness. Now, what does he mean? How can, what is he talking about here? 
Love is so central that it touches on multiple areas of your life. And when you take up this command that Jesus gave us to love brothers and sisters, it shines light all over the place. You begin to evaluate everything that you do, how you use your time and your money and your values and and how you think about other people. You start evaluating those things. If I'm really going to love you, I'm going to have to think about all sorts of things in my life. And this command itself and the labor to obey it has a purifying effect on the rest of your life. Think with me about this. So a few minutes ago, we read 1 Corinthians 13. I think we're going to be back in that chapter several times when we go through John because John's about love and that chapter's about love. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. So if you take up Jesus' command to love one another, uh, it means, Paul says, in part, thinking about how you use your gifts. That's what 1 Corinthians 13, the beginning, is about. If I can speak all kinds of tongues and if I, if I can understand all mysteries and if I can understand all prophecies, if I'm the most spectacularly gifted person in the world but I don't have love, I'm nothing, I gain nothing, if you take up the command to love, you will start thinking about how you use your gifts. Paul says that love is patient. Does anybody here struggle with impatience? Are there any impatient people in the room? Any impatient drivers in the room? Do you ever consider the fact that uh, love might make you a better driver? And that, that if, if you took up this command to love like Jesus, you would drive better than you do? Some of you need to grow in love. So anybody here who struggles with envy? Anybody here struggle with anger or forgiveness? Are you a rude person? Do you give up on people easily? When you take up this command to love like Jesus, the command will sift through your heart and it will ask you about your envy and your kindness and your patience and your anger and your rudeness. Love is at the intersection of where your life meets so much of your life. It will illuminate your character. It will show you ways in which God has been at work and areas where you still need to grow. It's so central. This past week, I I listened to a lecture about the medical missionary Helen Rosevere. Some of you maybe have read some of Helen Rosevere's books. She was a medical missionary in the Congo, and she writes in some of these books about some of the struggles she had working in a hospital and and how she was not always appreciated. Sometimes people were thoughtless or careless or contemptuous toward her. She said she was hurt often, and she said, you know, I realized after a number of years that my hurt was often a sign of my pride. This is what happens when you love people. You will learn things about yourself. Love will keep you from stumbling into envy or boasting or rudeness. It will keep you from gossip. Love will keep you from self-righteousness, from belittling others. Love will keep you from a, a, a cold, hard form of cynicism. Peter wrote that love covers a multitude of sins. It's also true that love will keep you from a multitude of sins. Struggling to to love other people penetrates deeply. It gives you the opportunity to learn about yourself. Do you see how this command? So if I'm walking in love, it shines a light in my life. It will keep me from being in the darkness. It will keep me from stumbling around. 
keep me from being blind. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another. This is the least surprising admonition in all of the Bible. Well, why? Why should I love brothers and sisters? Because of the Lord Jesus. Love is what we have received from him, and it's what pushes us to be more like him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence this morning, and we are grateful to you for this passage, this paragraph. We need this reminder. Lord, we're going to talk about love a lot in the weeks that are to come. And I'm unworthy to preach it. And these dear people, they're unworthy to hear it. Lord, we are, we are unworthy of the love of the Lord Jesus. But you have made us worthy to hear this message by forgiving us for our sins, reconciling us to yourself. So I do pray, Father, that we would obey this admonition of the Apostle Paul that we would love one another more and more. That it would become increasingly evident that we're followers of the great, risen, ascended Lord Jesus because we love each other. Use this command, we pray, to illuminate our lives that we might repent of all the darkness that remains and that abides in our hearts still. Purify us by your command. Encourage us when we fail it, Lord. Drive us to great awe over the great love of the Lord Jesus himself. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.